1: Welcome to New Books Network. This is the New Books and Sociology channel, and today I'm meeting with Dr. Gary Fine, and we'll be speaking about the culture of practice and the practice of culture in MFA education. Dr. Fine received his PhD in social psychology from Harvard University, and he's re- received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Russell Sage Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences and Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. So, uh, Gary, is there some more that you'd like to say about yourself beyond uh, my brief introduction? Well, certainly. Uh, I don't want to go too much into
0: my biography. Um, I was born in New York City, and in in Manhattan, and uh, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, where I was uh, a student uh, assistant to Irving Goffman, Um, And then I went to Harvard University, where my PhD is in social psychology, um, and subsequently I've taught at the University of Minnesota, the University of Georgia, and for the past 21 years at Northwestern University. And, uh, Michael, as you point out, I'm an ethnographer. Uh, sometimes I'm called a serial ethnographer, uh, because I have done many ethnographic projects over the course of my career, uh, from Little League Baseball to Dungeon and Dragons, uh, restaurant kitchens, uh, mycology, government meteorology, uh, chess, and this book, Talking Art, is about MFA education. So that's a brief history of uh, of my background. Uh, we can talk. My my current research is a study of a, a senior citizen activist organization, um, and looking at the way that senior citizens participate in uh, political engagement.
1: So, what uh, what brought you to writing talking art, the cultural practice and the practice of culture in MFA education? Could you tell me a bit more about that?
0: Absolutely. You know, I have been throughout the course of my career interested in the sociology of culture. And I was one of the uh, fairly early uh, sociologists who who focused on that area, that um, component of our discipline, uh, before it became as popular as it did uh, beginning in the the mid-1980s um and i had done a number of studies of cultural institutions including restaurants and then uh, my book everyday genius is about self-taught art outsider art well about 2010 i became interested in uh the process by which um art was incorporated into the university. Why is it that professional producing artists belong within the walls of a university? And I started thinking about that, and I started to interview people, uh, professors who were in uh, MFA programs, both in the visual arts and and then also originally in creative writing, uh, and asked them, Well, why should an artist, why should a writer, a creative writer, be part of a university system? And so I began to think about that issue. Uh, And uh, over time, I decided to focus on the MFA visual artists as opposed to the various other MFA programs that are in universities. Uh, And beginning in 2012, for a period of two years, I started to observe MFA programs in three universities. Now, I was focused on the MFA in the university system, as opposed to MFA programs that are affiliated with museums, say, or independent, uh, because I wanted to see the way in which artists get incorporated into a regime of knowledge. And that is really central to what my book, Talking Art, is about.
1: And uh, one of the distinguishing, uh, distinguishing characteristics that you bring up in this book is that MFA programs are not MA programs. Right. So
0: let's distinguish between the MFA program, that is the program for creators, for culture producers and the Ph.D. programs uh, because, you know, the M.A. programs are, are a little bit different in this regard. But the, one of the things that struck me as being important and also surprising was the division between the M.F.A. programs in visual arts and the Ph.D. programs in art history. You know, one would imagine that here would be, here are two groups which are, the people are interested in the visual arts, and so they should be together. Well, they tend to be far less together than you what might imagine. So, you know, they, they think of themselves as being divided. They say uh, that, you know, when an art historian goes to a class made up of Artists he speaks about going to the dark side, for instance, um, and there you know uh, the artists sometimes feel that they are like birds being studied by ornithologists. Um, there is this striking distinction between the studying and the doing, and this poses a problem when either students in either program, want to get exposed to the other program. They're doing fundamentally different things in a sociological sense. And that is one of the things that is at the
1: heart of this book. Prior to reading this book, uh, to be quite right, I thought that uh, an MFA program would teach how to do art but, in fact, what many of the uh, what many of the interviewees said mm-hmm. is that uh, they were in fact doing the art outside of the classroom, but learning how to speak about their art uh, with confidence when uh, they go out to sell or to present their work yes
0: that was another of my uh, great surprises. Um, let me just say parenthetically my my biggest surprise was the fact that unlike most sociologists uh, the artists like to smoke cigarettes and they often joke about that they they have a very different kind of culture but putting that the the that issue aside um, I had imagined before I started this research that the basic goal of this of these programs <coughs> would be to teach the artist the student how to How to paint, how to put paint on canvas, for instance, uh, to learn technique, in other words. And it turns out that that is sort of marginal to the collective enterprise. Now, students will learn technique from individual faculty members on a one on one basis, Uh, they will learn it from others outside the academy, but within the schools, there are no classes on uh, printmaking. There are no classes on sculpture uh, as such. What there is is a lot of discussion of artistic theory uh, because one of the things that universities do and do very well is to take knowledge, take technique, and transform it into a discipline of knowledge, that is a domain of knowledge that is um, uh, controlled by professionals, that is professors. Uh, They are professing a set of knowledge, a set of theoretical beliefs. So that becomes very important. And the other thing that is important is that they are creating a artistic self, a being of artist and that occurs through the critique critique process where one of the things that all of these programs do is they you know they have students uh put their artwork put their practice as it's called on the walls of you know the white cube room um, an empty classroom and then the group Judges, discusses, critiques the artwork, and that is crucial to becoming
1: an artist. Yes, and this critiquing process, this critique, is uh, something that you spent a a large portion of uh, your book writing about and uh, giving great detail because it is a grueling process. Could you tell me a little bit more about the experiences that uh, these uh, interviewees, these participants had and their critique right well i'm
0: you know on the assumption that uh, my audience is going to be primarily sociologists um maybe it will um you know if you think you sociologists think about the way that we handle our colloquia our discussions we are really very gentle to each other um That we very rarely say things that are explicitly hurtful, like this is bad art, or maybe you shouldn't be in graduate school, or things of that kind, or, you know, if, if you, if this is your work, well, I have to tell you, I hate it. We sociologists tend not to do that, but in the art departments, not our history but the our practice departments that becomes important doesn't happen all the time i mean it's, to be as dramatic as i put it is is fairly rare but it is not seen as uniquely deviant that that roughness is part of the belief among professors and even students that that is how they will be able to survive in the world out there, in the art market. Um, And so critiques can be, at times, really quite heated. Um, uh, People uh, in these art departments speak of what they call a shit sandwich. Shit sandwich is, well, you begin by saying how much you like the work and how appreciative you are. And then, for most of the rest of the time, you talk about how it's a failure, and then, at the end the last the other piece of bread, as it were, is you you say again how much you appreciate the uh the student's practice uh and we tend not to have those kind of thick sandwiches, as it were um and it reminded me that, in a sense. What these faculty members are doing, primarily faculty who who have these critical remarks, is that they are taking the work extremely seriously. That is, that we sociologists tend not to say to each other, this project, say it in public at least, this project is a failure. When we say that, it's under blind review, so it's never personal in quite the same way but when a faculty member says to a student this work fails that is very dramatic it focuses your attention and it says that what we are doing is really consequential it matters. Um, It may be painful but it
1: matters the experience the student has on campus when you think of sociology and many other, uh, other majors on, on a traditional campus, the professors are on campus interacting mm-hmm. and, uh, working in their offices that are located on that campus. Many of these MFA faculty members you wrote are, are, they have their, their offices off campus where they are designing their work. And it's actually the students who have design studios on campus. And I, I use studio. Uh, maybe a bit too loosely because uh, uh, you write that they're that they're not that glamorous. In
0: some cases, right? Well, they certainly are not glamorous spaces. that students are assigned. They they tend to be the uh, the dregs of campus uh, because artists get their spaces dirty. Now, for the faculty, they are most of them are practicing artists. They have their own practice, their own careers. And they are making artworks in their studios. And studios are, um, you know, it's a large spatial invention, uh, a large spatial commitment, I should say. Um, and most artists, at, at all three schools there that I studied, all three schools, the professors have their studios off campus. Thus, they... Probably see their graduate students, their graduate students less than we sociologists would see our students because we can work in our offices if we choose to, uh, and so this is a different structure than uh, the the more academic side where it is common, you know, for people to have a computer in their office and they're doing their writing and and so forth, and, and they will be around campus. More than it seems to be the case with some of these artists, art professors. Um, so, you know, they uh, there are only a few there are a few schools in which uh, artists, art professors are given camp, uh, studios on campus, such as the University of Chicago, which is notable for that.
1: And part of that has to do with the uh, I guess the environment in which the university is located. I, I know you speak on that in your in your book and about how how atmosphere plays into the uh, to the way the students and the faculty interact. And uh, it's quite possible then that in art the product is made in isolation and it only is brought into the public sphere when it's talked about during this critique well the critique becomes this public moment
0: and it is a moment that in some ways is like a gallery opening but in other ways it's quite different i mean emotionally it's quite different a gallery opening you have you have cheese you have wine you have people dressed up and they're out on the town and everyone is saying how wonderful everything is and the critique as we've discussed earlier is You know, you do have a a group of people, but they are focused on the artwork and giving their opinions of it and trying to make sense out of it and maybe make sense out of it in a way that is really quite different from the intentions of the students. So the intentionality of the artist is a topic of discussion and debate in these critiques. And the artist, the art student is not supposed to say too much, is not supposed to be defensive, you know, even though she or he may feel that uh, the audience has, has misjudged what they intended.
1: And is this experience
0: gendered at all? Is it gendered? Um, you know, the schools that I have looked at, two of the schools were pretty evenly divided between men and women. Uh, One of them was predominantly female students. Uh, You know, in uh, the art world is a political world, a world of uh, progressive ideologies. Uh, You know, so there's a lot of support for uh, Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of support for gender equality. Uh, I'm sure if I was doing the research today, there would be all kinds of issues uh, having to do with the Me Too movement. Uh, my research was, was prior to the, that development. Uh, LGBTQ issues are certainly very uh, prominent. Uh, and one of the things that happens, not with all artists, but with many of them, is that their artwork reflects their identity. So women have to decide, are they going to is their artwork going to speak to issues of gender? Many of them decide, yes, that's what they want to do. Some of them decide that that is not their interest. Likewise for gay students, gay, lesbian students, you know, they have to decide, you know, is their sexuality part of the message that they want to communicate through their art and students of color, you know, have that same kind of issue. And, uh, Typically, they will be pressed into using their identities, their the categories in which they fall, as being uh, a means by which their art speaks to the public.
1: Yes, and much of the art that you wrote about, uh, particularly, I believe it was three artists who were uh, pretty open to having their names expressed in the writing, and uh, much of it was quite dramatic and and uh, very in your face, uh, uh, emotional, uh, particularly with the uh, one girl and uh, performing with the stocking and and jello, and uh, uh, one of the other uh, women who. Uh, wrote, a, wrote about her experience with her her sibling and the pictures she took and, uh, and, and replicated uh, through taking pictures of the photographs. Could you talk about some of their experiences? Right.
0: I, so what I decided to do in this book, and it's a little bit different from ethnography generally, a little bit different from my ethnography, but this has become a bigger issue among ethnographic sociologists. Um, I wanted, if I'm looking at art and talking about art, I wanted to show some of the works. And to show some of the works, I needed to get the approval of the artists to allow me to talk about them, to name them. Um, and for, actually, four of the artists that I got to know during this process uh, gave me permission to talk about their biography. I interviewed them, each of them twice. And we talked about both general issues and then their particular life circumstances. Um, And I wanted to show the way in which biography matters, the way in which biography is incorporated into art. Um, So that, for instance, one of the uh, students that I looked at, a very fine um, documentary photographer, uh, had a sister who is profoundly disabled. Uh, a, a young woman who has Rett syndrome, uh, which is a, a devastating disease, particularly if it's uh, uh, you know it, it has there's a range of of how how much it affects people, but it, in her sister's case, it, it was. It was really devastating, and she wanted her work eventually became this document of her and her sister and the connections between the two and it forced the viewer to see this connection this this very disabled young woman uh, and to to think of it as being transformed into an aesthetic project product um another of the students this you you mentioned uh this case her name is hannah owens um and hannah is uh, uh, was a young woman who at uh, during high school um uh, became uh, uh dependent on substance substance abuse was um and it took her a while, a number of years before she became clean. She's now clean for 10 years, Uh, and it prevented her from being part of the social life of a school, which is often, you know, a a wash in drugs and in alcohol. Well, she was she was clean in in body and soul. Uh, And part of her work had to do with issues of the body. As a consequence of this, and so this was a woman who was uh, quite comfortable in her body in uh, nudity, uh, so in some of her performance critiques, she would uh, she would dance naked um, she would do this in in a divided room in which the women would sit on one side they could see her. the men could only hear her um, and one Piece in which she was not naked, but she had uh, members of the audience uh, eat jello and then spit that jello into her worn pantyhose. Uh, a quite dramatic, uh, perhaps traumatic uh, episode, but part of her practice. You know, the way that we think about the body and the way that we think of the female body in particular so I wanted to be able to describe that and I wanted to be able to give her credit for the kind of work that she is doing and she is a quite successful young artist Uh, you know it takes a long while for for an artist to become established but she has done performances in Europe in Mexico throughout the United States and is becoming increasingly well known
1: the mfa programs you studied are rather fascinating from a sociological standpoint it uh uh truly is a a dramaturgical analysis of uh, of the experiences that all of these artists have had taking on the role that uh that they have achieved as as artists and how they experience it within the mfa program
0: you know i think that is one of our jobs it's one of the things i treasure about our discipline to be able to go into situations and think about them in terms of how they are organized and what their organization says about other forms of interaction and that's what i always try to do in in all of my research projects you know the basic approach that i take is to look at small group cultures the way in which each of these uh, schools which had you know ranged from 10 to about 25 students how they each created a culture and what that localizing culture does to create the possibility of society you know that is i'm i'm uh One of the ways in which I have become known, uh, I have a book called Tiny Publics. So I'm very interested in not looking at the broader structures of society. That's important sociologically, of course, always has been. But to look at the way that interaction regimes, interaction systems create a set of meanings and a vibrant
1: culture. Yes, and these smaller strokes are what creates the much broader strokes, and then they continue to reflect off of each other, uh, potentially as uh, as we saw here with the MFA programs. Uh, do you, do you see any limitations with the with the study that uh, that you did here? Uh, particularly, do you see that these Midwestern programs reflect other areas of the United States where MFA programs mm-hmm. may also exist? Sure, uh,
0: you know that is. Inevitably, a problem of ethnographic research where we are studying only one particular domain, you know, and whether it is, you know, Matt Desmond writing about eviction, but really writing about Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or whether it's Alice Goffman, who is writing about African-American life, but is also just located in Philadelphia And for all of us, all of us ethnographers, we have a particular location, and we attempt to generalize from that. Now, in my case, I have three schools, but all three schools are university-based, and they are, as you point out, they are all located in the Midwest. Well, the the fact that they're university-based is an important part of this project because that's what I wanted to study, how disciplines are created from art worlds. You know, that, that's really the core of this book. So it is, I see, a contribution to the sociology of knowledge in that sense. But the fact that they're located in the Midwest isn't important in the same way. Uh, I happen to be located in Chicago, and so it made sense for my research, to be of Chicago area universities. Um, But you are right to point out that there are differences. That, for instance, by not studying Columbia University or Yale, which are really part of the New York City art world and thus have a, a somewhat different politics associated with them students are much more likely to be connected with large galleries early on uh, my school's gallerists were were barely a part of that world unless they were invited in for particular sessions and likewise los angeles you know is another major art world in the united states uh, where chicago is a second level art world not like Los Angeles or like New York. But on the other hand, it's also quite different than if I were looking at, uh, say, the University of Iowa or the University of Kentucky or, uh, you know, Mississippi State, um, you know, areas, universities that are not part of a local art world in the same sense. And so Chicago is a second-tier art world, but it is an art world in a way that rural schools, small town schools, would not be.
1: And then, to be fair, the strength of the of the study is that uh, we have to start somewhere and in order for art worlds to be studied, somebody has to take the le- leap of faith and uh, report their findings. So, uh, I think that is one of the strengths of of, of your research.
0: Well, that's very kind, Michael. I, I appreciate it. Um, and it's true, but only true to the extent that other people will come along and do other ethnographies of MFA education, M- MFA programs. Um, it is often the case, I think it's a dilemma for ethnographers. You know, if one person has studied, you know, the MFA Departments. No one else will want to do it because it's already been done, and I think we need to build on each other's research. Um, and you know, so I did my research back in um, uh, the mid nineteen seventies on little league baseball, right? And I was looking at little league baseball teams in in New England uh, and Minnesota. Uh, no one else. In the past 40 years has done an ethnography of little league baseball teams. Um, you know, I've kind of, I've done it. And so people say, well, that's been done. Let's do something else. I'm not sure that that is entirely helpful, but it's certainly understandable.
1: And just as I'm reading Scenescapes, uh, uh, a new book that was recently published, and uh, one of the uh, things that the authors bring out about that is that uh, any scene can be observed in several different ways based on what the person is focused on.
0: Well, absolutely. That, you know, someone else can come into my scene, you know, whether, you know, Loic Waquan. Or Alice Goffman, or you know any of the, the Eli Anderson, you know they would if they did the same study, they would have different kinds of findings. So let let me give you an example of this. One of the rare cases, one of the really admirable cases, I did a study of uh, uh, meteorological offices, government meteorological offices, Um and I looked at Chicago and then two other. Offices in in the Midwest, and at the time there was a graduate student at uh, University of Chicago named Phaedra Dyfa, and Phaedra made the decision, um, a brave decision, you know, uh, that she also wanted to study meteorological offices. So she studied an office in New England, uh, in a different in a different weather, but. Further, she was a sociologist of science. She was a science studies person. And so she was interested in the construction of scientific knowledge and the use of that knowledge. I'm a social psychologist, a cultural sociologist. So if you read my book, uh, Authors of the Storm, and you read her book, which came out uh, a few years, six or seven years later, you will see that You know, we're both looking at weather service offices, but we're looking at them in quite different ways. And I think we need more of that. Um, You know, there are only a few areas in which there are multiple studies. There are multiple studies of prisons. There are multiple studies of medical schools. But, you know, that kind of, um, you know, uh, looking at the same kind of domain in different ways is very important.
1: I think part of that may be that ethnography is a is a slow uh, research method. It's not something that can be analyzed in a in a in a quick, fast, dirty way.
0: You it's are slow right. And dirty. Ab- absolutely. So i I will tell my audience that uh, uh, when I did my little league baseball research, it was my first research project. Um, it took me three years, three summers and then many more years to write the book. Well, I was getting my PhD at the time. Did I study Little League for my dissertation? No, I did not. I did a laboratory study of small groups. I started the research in uh, that, the experimental research in July of 1975, and I got my PhD approved. I got it awarded. November of 1976. So, you know, about a year and 4 months. I couldn't have done that with an ethnography. Um and so I think you're absolutely right that, you know, we ethnographers have an exa- have an advantage in that uh you know, it's not uh, uh, monetarily intensive that we can do it on a cheap. You know, all you need is a, a notepad and a computer, and that's it. Uh, you know, it's not capital intensive, but it is labor intensive. And if you want to do a good ethnography, you have to spend years doing it. And that's what the the great ethnographers do. Um, you know, I I don't know if I put myself in that category, but. You know, certainly I have had a long tradition of doing multi year ethnographic projects. And I think that's what a serious ethnographer, a working ethnographer, will choose to do. That you can't go in as a tourist, spend a few weeks, and then write an article. You need to be there on the ground. The point at which you feel that you know as much as the
1: natives. And then to spend several hours in isolation to make sense of all of the field notes that you've put together.
0: Several years. It's, you know, um, so, you know, when I, my most, this book, Talking Art, uh, I started the research in uh, 2012 and it was published in 2018. That's six years. Uh, my research on chess, which was the previous book, I started that research in 2005, and the book was published in
1: 2015.
0: Uh, so, you know, this is a a long-term process. It is a difficult commitment, particularly for PhD students.
1: But it's a... Is this a project that you have your PhD students uh, go out and and do? Probably uh, even your undergraduates potentially to uh, get them started in the field.
0: Well, you know, what you would do is, you know, you send people out just to sensitize them to what the doing of ethnography is all about. But, you know, when you are doing this as your dissertation or even as an MA thesis, you have to commit yourself to many months of observation and in many cases years of observation. And that's what, you know, I've had many terrific graduate students who do ethnographic research projects, but they don't finish like I finished in four years. You know, they will take six, seven years, uh, you know, and that extra two years that extra three years is because they are gathering the kind of data that I didn't need to gather for my laboratory experiment dissertation.
1: Well, we've come to uh, we have to come to a conclu- conclusion here. Um, one of the uh, final questions that I would like to ask, though, is what is the most valuable uh, piece of this book that uh, uh, that you treasure the most from the research you did?
0: Oh gosh. You know, I mean the first thing people will often say what's your favorite ethnography and it's just like saying what's your favorite which is your favorite child. Uh, you know, you kind of love them all. Um you know, in this you know, I would say what what I am trying to do is to show how a artistic domain, a cultural domain becomes an academic discipline. So, how the connection between art and knowledge is really at the heart of this book. And so, it is this contribution as I see it to you know, not just the sociology of culture, but the sociology of knowledge. Um, you know, I think that's sort of what I treasure most in terms of my finding. You know, I'm also interested. In the, uh, you know, the the way in which theory plays a role more so than technique in the creation of art, and the way that artistic identities are being formulated.
1: Thank you again for your time today, Gary, and I look forward to talking to you uh, about your future works.
0: I am delighted. Thank you very much, Michael.